Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Today, in the 10th episode of Single Malt History, I'll be talking with Dr. Lauren Mackay about two of the alleged scheming men of the Tudor court, diplomats Thomas Boleyn and Eustace Chapuis. Neither have a great reputation, with Chapuis being presented by many historians as a Catholic bigot, a shady-dealing foreigner, which is nothing compared to the sins of Thomas Boleyn, the Anglo-Irish Earl who was father of Anne Boleyn, grandfather of Elizabeth I, and who, in the course of his life from 1477 to 1539, allegedly and brutally exploited his children to climb the social ladder. What's the truth behind all this? We'll find out. Lawrence was the first interview I recorded for this podcast, so I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. But first, uh, I've recently wrapped up reading a really good novel and an equally good piece of nonfiction. The novel which I thoroughly enjoyed was 69 Degrees North by Robert Jackson. It's sort of a cross between recent historical fiction and an environmentalist thriller. It's set in Russia right after the collapse of communism and the arrival of capitalism in the 1990s. And it really has got such a kind of fantastic sense of a society that's struggling to transition, as well as really quite hauntingly beautiful descriptions of Russia's scenery and how it's under threat. Nonfiction-wise, I was really impressed by Professor Martin Raddy's recent book, The Habsburgs, The Rise and Fall of a World Power, which is published in the US and Canada, I think, as The Habsburgs to Rule the World. Raddy takes the story of this minor Austro-Swiss noble family who began their careers as war-loving, sword-toting knights in the Middle Ages, and he takes us from the Habsburgs' humble beginnings to their position as Austria's imperial family, from which they eventually created the first global empire, stretching from the Americas to the Adriatic. And from that high point, he charts their long decline culminating when they backed the wrong side in the First World War, causing their monarchy to crumple into the dustbin of history. Each generation of this royal family is told with a chapter focusing in on a different object or a different aspect of the rule. It's such an interesting approach on the Habsburgs, and there's so much of this family's history, it's, it's vast, that shrinking the focus into one object that shows us what they were thinking, how the world was changing, really a superb tactic from the author. Raddy covers everything from a fake chess playing machine to an alchemist science experiments to a vampire hunt in 18th century Slovenia. And it is really a phenomenal book on the Habsburg dynasty, which I think people familiar with them or just those generally interested in history will enjoy. My only quibble with it was the slightly odd epilogue in which Professor Raddy seems I don't know what the word is, but um, snippy or 
contemptuous. It's snippy. We'll go with snippy at the modern Habsburgs for not being as politically active as their ancestors, which, you know, isn't really their fault, (laughs) given the revolution and whatnot. I'm sure that they'd love to still be ruling Central Europe, but that's not really up to them. And since they can't be his sacred imperial Catholic royal and apostolic majesty again, being socialites, art collectors, ambassadors, and racing car drivers is all they have at the moment. Leave them alone. Otherwise, a great piece of history from one of the great experts in Central and Eastern European history. So that novel was 69 Degrees North by Robert Jackson and The Habsburgs by Martin Raddy. And now, on to the interview. Dr. Lauren Mackay is no stranger to historically controversial men, nor to historical firsts. She is the author of Among the Wolves of Court, the first biography of Anne Boleyn's reviled father, Thomas. She also wrote Inside the Tudor Court, the first biography of 16th century diplomat and man of letters, Eustace Chapuis. Lauren's most recent publication is a companion to the Wolf Hole series. So if you have any questions about what inspired Hilary Mantel's award-winning trilogy of Tudor novels, make sure to check out Lauren's book. In the interests of full disclosure, Lauren and I have also just finished working on a project together, which we can't say too much about at the moment. That is a bit like saying I have gossip, but I can't tell you. But hopefully, uh, Lauren, you'll come back when we can talk about it. Absolutely. I'm counting the days until we can talk about this. <laughs> yes, me too. Yeah. Oh. yeah, I keep wanting to do a breadcrumb trail and I, uh, <laughs> I didn't end well for Hansel and Gretel and it won't end well for me. So for our listeners, um, I'm just going to give a, a brief uh, potted life or and afterlife of Thomas Boleyn. So Thomas Boleyn is famous or infamous in British history as the father of Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn. Thomas was the grandson of an Irish nobleman, the Earl of Ormond, a title which he later inherited, and he was also a very celebrated diplomat in the service of King Henry VII, who ruled England, Ireland and Wales from 1485 to 1509, and of Henry VIII, who reigned from 1509 to 1547. In the years since Thomas Boleyn's death in 1539, he has had one of the most consistently negative reputations of any 16th century aristocrat. He has been described as someone who pimped his children to advance his own career and then abandoned them when his two youngest children, Queen Anne and her brother George, were falsely accused of committing incest with each other and executed in 1536. This long-standing negative depiction of Thomas recently gained a lot more popularity when it was included in best-selling novels like The Other Boleyn Girl and Wolf Hall, But those novelists are simply and perhaps fairly building on what historians have written for decades about Anne Boleyn's father. So to give a flavour of Thomas's uh, not exactly varied reputation for our listeners, The Spectator, summing him up for their readers in 1924, said that every historian they could find agreed that Thomas Boleyn clearly was not a man of principle. They were reviewing a new biography of Anne by Philip Walsingham Sargent, who wrote, it is clearly hopeless to attempt any defence of Sir Thomas Boleyn. Another biographer, Paul Friedman, summarised Thomas Boleyn as a mean egotist and a coward. 
Others told their readers that Thomas Boleyn was unencumbered by any discernible moral principles, the worst father in a century that produced many of them, a monster, a mere pimp, a creature of the court, an emblem of everything repugnant about the ambitious Tudor aristocracy. So Lauren, given that we've just heard of Thomas Boleyn as more or less the person you'd want to sit next to least at dinner, in fact, not even that, sort of the kind of person you'd be nervous sharing a prison cell with, what attracted you to spending years in his posthumous company? Yeah, what an introduction. Can you imagine if Thomas had been introduced like at the Academy Awards? So this is Thomas Boleyn. This is what we all know about him. This is Tinder bio. <laughs> Just wait. Uh, you know, I never take anything at face value. And I remember reading those particular sentiments during my master's and my bachelor and my master's. But it became very apparent to me that uh, whenever they said that they made these bold statements, they never really backed it up with with anything. And after a while, I began to realize that, oh, okay, these are opinions rather than arguments. And they've come from somewhere. And I began to trace back these opinions. And I knew that these opinions hadn't really been around during Thomas Boleyn's lifetime. So somewhere in between the 16th century and the, and the 20th century, this particular, uh, I suppose, evaluation of Thomas's character had come about. And it really did come about during the Victorian period, which is when there was a real idealized sense of monarchy and there was an absolute uh, constructed effort to rehabilitate Henry VIII and move him away from being a complete psychopath and maniacal tyrant into something more glorious and, and magisterial. And in doing that, what they did, and I promise, Gareth, there's a point to this. I know I'm just sort of... Yeah, I, mean, I love it. Here, but I'm getting to the point. Um, <laughs> The, the narrative surrounding Anne Boleyn became so simplified and it was sort of broken down into two. One is that Anne is a damsel, a pathetic victim who was just manipulated and used as a pawn by the males in her family and by her husband. And the other narrative is that she's a scheming, homewrecking harlot mm. uh, who basically schemed her way onto the throne, usurped the real king, usurped the real queen of England. And in both these narratives, Thomas Boleyn can't catch a trick because right. if she's the victim, then he is the evil Machiavellian father. But if she's the scheming harlot, then she's just a chip off the old block. It was just impossible. He can't win. And I realized that this, this reputation uh, was almost it was constructed in a, in a systematic way. It was a systematic denigration of his character and not really based on anything other than for these Victorian historians, the Boleyns were a salutary lesson in what happens when a family overreaches their station. For me, and I always say this, it's to these men, these male historians, it wasn't that Thomas Boleyn rose to such heights or fell from such heights that he just dared to attempt it in the first place. The real Thomas Boleyn has been in front of us this entire time, but no one has ever really thought to go back to the source and find him. And that's the tragedy. And in doing so, I actually, I would have him at the head of my table. He's absolutely brilliant company. Yeah, I mean, well, so this idea that, I mean, I think you've sort of hit it, the nail on the head that sort of integral to any perception of him is this idea that he, this long-standing idea. I mean, you're right, it's been here from pretty much the Victorian period. This idea that he pushed his daughters to sleep their way to the top is really undercut, I think, by some of the Boleyn family's private correspondence. I mean, there's a letter 
written by a young Anne to her father, where she comments on the fact that her father has made it very clear to her that what he wants her to be most in the world is, and I'm using Anne's idiosyncratic childhood French here, twos on it, <laughs> or like a completely chaste woman. Yeah. So can you share with listeners what kind of documents you came across in your research that really changed your mind and your readers about who Thomas Boleyn was? And can you put to bed, pun intended, once and for all, the idea that he pimped out his daughters? I will do that first because it's the most annoying part of my of my research. <laughs> it, it, it's such a problematic word as well, Thomas Boleyn, the pimp. Yeah. Uh, because of, of course, we have to. In, in what we're really saying here is yes, that he used and abused his daughters for his own good. But we have to remember, Anne Boleyn was chased for seven years whilst being chased by Henry VIII in a most predatory way. I mean, he was so aggressive in his pursuit of her, and no one could do anything about it. Not least her father, her family, not least Anne. Mm-hmm. And but. You know, when we talk about that, you know, the fact that she did hold out for so long, that's a really long game to be playing for a pimp. I don't think the payoff was ever going to be that good to wait seven years. <laughs> and I often think, I don't know what, I don't know people who say he's a pimp. I'm not sure they know what that word really means. But on a more serious note, to say that Thomas Boleyn is a pimp, it rolls so easily off the tongue, m- much in the same way it used to when people called Anne Boleyn a whore. Because those two terms are linked. He is the pimp because she is the whore. Mm-hmm. And that's quite problematic for me because I know Anne Boleyn's reputation has been so elevated. We have rescued her from that, you know, that despicable and, and very archaic and misogynistic interpretation. But we haven't rescued Thomas the same way. So she's somehow formidable and brilliant and intelligent and educated and in, in control of her own destiny and playing the game in, to, to suit herself. She is a powerful player on that chessboard with Henry VIII. She is holding her own. And yet Thomas Boleyn is still somehow still the pimp. It's such a disconnect in the narrative. It's because we haven't really caught up in the history with Thomas Boleyn. We're still centuries back with the Victorian historians and their pipes thinking, oh gosh, well, he's just a terrible father. And, and it's really unfair because it's it's so imbalanced. Now, of course, some people would argue, well, okay, maybe he didn't pimp out Anne Boleyn, but certainly he must have pimped out Mary. And again, that's problematic because I found in the evidence he had such a warm and close relationship with his son-in-law, William Carey. He really tried to bring this young man under his wing and cultivate his career, much in the way that Thomas Boleyn's own father-in-law, mm-hmm. Thomas Howard, had done for him. And we just see this generation, he's paying hes paying it forward. And it's quite touching to see this relationship between the two. I think, of course, what we know, Mary Boleyn had quite a fractious relationship with her father. And I believe that's because she became Henry's mistress. Yeah. That's not what he wanted for his daughter. And we and we see this at the time, the timeline fits when, of course, she's rejected as a mistress or discarded, I should say, her husband dies. Thomas is still so angry with her, I think. And, and there's no other reason, because if she had done her duty as he, you know, if she had been Henry's mistress and that's all he wanted her to be, then there'd be no reason to be angry at her. He would she would have done her job and that would have been the end of it. There's something more to it. He wanted more for his daughters. So. That's definitely something I do want to put to bed because I think 
you know, if, if we're going to keep calling Thomas Moon a pimp, then we're going to have to probably reassess uh, the women once more. And I don't think anyone wants to do that. You know, they've had their time, they've had their rehabilitation, and it's time to rehabilitate Thomas. But I found it was easy to do because the correspondence, as you say, shed so much light on Thomas William. And that letter for me was such an, uh, a pivotal moment because we don't have correspondence between Thomas and Anne. That's really all we have. And that letter is written by, you know, young Anne, maybe she's 12 or 13 or depending on which uh, timeline you want to follow with Anne and when she was born and when she was in Austria, uh, Netherlands, sorry. Uh, and I just think that uh, it, it's interesting, this letter, that it, it was been preserved throughout the centuries because Thomas Boleyn preserved it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of man this, this is who would preserve a letter from his young daughter throughout his entire life, and it's found in his possessions following his death. This isn't a man who's pimping out his daughter. This is a man who wants his daughter to have the best education, to be uh, to have role models such as Margaret of Austria and... Queen Claude and Louise of Savoy, he is preparing her to be a formidable woman. And I think that's such a powerful element of his character and, and, and says so much about his relationship with his daughter. But also the correspondence that I found shows him to be such a dedicated son. He is so devoted to his mother, Margaret Butler. He's devoted to his godson, Thomas Tebold. He has these fantastic relationships uh, and I do want to bring in Erasmus, of course, very quickly, because he has this fantastic relationship with Erasmus. So the, the correspondence that I found really painted such a, a different portrait of Thomas Boleyn. And again, this is correspondence that's not hidden. It's It's been in plain sight for centuries and just no one's really wanted to look at it because everyone just wants to go with the agreed narrative that he is this evil Machiavellian father so it definitely changed how I, I saw him from the very beginning and it just started with a couple of glances at the original documentation. Well that I mean that sort of brings us on quite nicely to the not just the enduring strength of these historical reputations or these sort of roles in a historical morality play that in which we cast people but also I think the emotional investment people have in them if they've grown up reading them. And I have to say, uh, I do have a significant amount of admiration for you because the <laughs> moment Thomas Boleyn's name is mentioned online, people tend to get quite spirited in their comments. I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you just drink all the time? I, mean, I wouldn't blame you. I, I have seen when you're like, I mean, recently this week I saw it, I mean, you, your years of research get shot down with slightly pissy comments. Like, this is just my opinion. Sorry, didn't realise we didn't have freedom of speech here. Uh, discuss the, um, the vortex in which you find yourself. <laughs> Well, firstly, as a half Canadian, half Australian, I drink regardless. It doesn't matter what's <laughs> happening. Um, but certainly, and, and you know, it's difficult because you just never know whether to open the Pandora's box or not. Do you rise above it or do you, are you morally obliged to have an encounter online? Sometimes I try to just ignore it, but sometimes I feel, because the, the, the reaction to Thomas Boleyn is so visceral that you would have thought like they knew him personally. And it really comes down again to how we perceive Anne. And I think also because, and I hate, and again, not to not to denigrate any other historians, but out there, you know, we have these TV documentaries coming out thick and fast year after year after year. And they don't ever really say 
anything different. They're, they're, it's always the same narrative. It's as though we've all agreed on a pre-constructed narrative and Thomas Boleyn is the villain and as the villain he gratifies it, it works and I think that's quite problematic because if you're if you're not hearing anything new and you're not reading any new evidence and there's only one book out there which is mine uh, and that's really facing a, an onslaught of books which say something different I think it is very difficult but in the end I mean all I can say look it was good it was good enough for my PhD examiners guys they had no problem with it and they seemed pretty clever and I, and I think also in my book, I always I was just trying to present a different side and say, look, there's, there's more to the story. And I think it's interesting when people online, they they seem to be so open. They want new narratives. They want new research. Um, they want a new appraisal. And when faced with a new appraisal, they sort of shy away like, oh, God, no, not, not that kind of appraisal. I think people are scared of new history in a way. And I think we're also scared of perhaps. Um, finding that the uh, historians of, of previous decades, perhaps their research isn't so current anymore. And that's OK. Young young scholars coming up, we have to be confident in ourselves and uh, confident in our research and let the research speak for itself. And readers out there have to be open to a different narrative and yeah. be able to understand that, yes, perhaps it's time to, for a reappraisal and a rehabilitation. Everyone welcomed a rehabilitation of Thomas Cromwell with opened arms. Yeah. Why does Thomas Boleyn still have to be pushed so far down into the mud? Right. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, Thomas Boleyn and um, the third Duke of Norfolk are pretty much the only ones who don't have their champions. Now, I would argue the Duke of Norfolk, <laughs> having spent many years with him, there's a reason why the Duke of Norfolk oh, yes. is heinous. But I do think it's more with Thomas Boleyn, you've really hit the nail on the head with this. It's not actually, a, people aren't really interested in the historical reality of him. Many of them aren't. Thomas has, Boleyn has slotted into this kind of morality play that we have made the Tudors. And people don't want to lose the the sort of the um, moustache twirling villain of it. And, I mean, and there's so many things about him that are just... It's surprising. One thing I didn't realise until I very briefly covered some of Thomas Boleyn's earlier court appearances when I was writing about his brother-in-law, Edmund, was that Thomas was so athletic. I mean, certainly the dark legend we have of him for so many years doesn't easily conjure images of a sports-loving athlete. And as you mentioned <laughs> with Erasmus, he was also a pretty generous patron to philosophers and scholars. So Thomas Boleyn, the jock who secretly loved to read, discuss. I should have made that my book title. That would have <laughs> sold so many copies. Oh my goodness, I missed, I missed a trick there. Uh, you're right, he's the man who can do it all. But what he actually, he, he exemplifies the, the ideal courtier of Henry VIII's reign. And this actually feeds into what uh, historian Stephen Gunn talked about, this new men idea. Thomas Boleyn is actually, he is the, the ideal new man because he can do it all. Yes, he hunts and he hawks and he jousts and he dances and he wrestles in the mud when the occasion calls for it. And we know this because we know he wrestled the king himself. And yet he has this, this sensitive side uh, so he has also this genuine spirituality and uh, devotion. So, yes, he's at home in the tilt yard as he is writing to Desiderius Erasmus. But it's interesting because it's not it's not an affectation 
and it's not it's not um i would say uh something that it's it's a construct it's something that he has cultivated because that's what he wants to be and i think that's just it's very clear it's a genuine desire to be the man who can do it all because then you're so indispensable to everyone it, it's really something to aspire to and i think it's interesting because you know thomas more never really uh, shut up about his relationship with Erasmus. I mean, it was a <laughs> gig being Erasmus's best friend. Thomas Boleyn had such a collegial relationship with Erasmus and never bragged about it. In fact, you know, you don't really hear him talk about it at all. But funnily enough, you hear Erasmus defending Thomas Boleyn quite often. When Thomas Boleyn is criticised, you know, for what's happening with his daughter and the, and the king and what's happening to Catherine of Aragon, Erasmus jumps to his defence saying, this man is a brilliant man and I can assure you nothing of what you're saying is true. It's not accurate. So I think that's a very interesting side to him and certainly the spirituality, which is so very genuine in Thomas Boleyn's case. And I'm, I'm quite haunted always by that devotional text that he has translated and, and dedicate, he, Erasmus dedicates to him in 1533. And that's the preparatio ad mortem, the preparation for death, which is how to live one's life to be prepared for death. And he has that commissioned at the height of his family's uh, power when she's about to be crowned queen. And I, I've always just thought, gosh, what, a, what an interesting text to have there. And what does that say about this man? And again, but he's he's so well liked by everyone at court. I mean, I you know he has tense relationships with some people, but he's he's absolutely adored by the young Henry VIII. Catherine of Aragon adores him as well when he's a young man. He gets along with all of the Howard boys, especially Edward Howard, that dashing admiral who ended up dying quite tragically. The only person who didn't like him was Thomas Howard, the third Thomas Howard, and I think that really speaks volumes about Thomas Boleyn in a good way. If Thomas yeah. <laughs> Howard doesn't like you, you're doing something right, I it, think. It's yeah. It's have I mean, I obviously read about um Thomas the Third Duke uh later when Catherine Howard is queen. And it, it does seem yeah. to be a running theme in his life, uh, Thomas Howard, that like pretty much everyone who came into close contact with him ended Just up. Just couldn't stand him. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like, absolutely. And you know, Anne Boleyn apparently did like tossed him from her rooms with words that she wouldn't use to her dogs. I'm like, well, no, she likes the dog. She hates <laughs> um, Well, that's right. And, Tom, and Thomas Boleyn's always yanking Thomas Howard back when he's about to say something stupid. Yeah. And we see this quite a few times, well, especially with Wolsey. I mean, it's um, that sounds like a full-time job for Thomas yeah, for Thomas. exhausting. Uh, well, exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. And I just, you try so hard to find, I mean, I really, in, in Young and Damned and Fair, I worked really hard, Lauren, to try and stitch together three positive sentences about uh, <laughs> He on. had a good taste in hats. Yeah, <laughs> that would be hat. it. And he didn't think that they should um, burn the whole of the North? Like, that oh. was <laughs> just, just trying to find something. Um, oh, yes, okay. No, that works, that works. That's about, it. That's if that's all you can squeeze from that lemon, then that's yeah, it. Yeah, it was. I Because initially I was like, oh, like I said something like some of his advice on Ireland in the 1520s was quite sensible. Which, <laughs> and really, the emphasis is on some. Um, some. Uh, so Thomas Boleyn, right, so, well, we, Thomas Boleyn is the second great diplomat of the early 16th century that you've written about. Your first book, Inside the Tudor Court, was on Eustace Chapuis, who, for our listeners, was the Habsburg Emperor's ambassador to England for most of the latter half of Henry VIII's reign. 
Um, I reviewed Inside the Tudor Court when it came out, and I can remember really clearly thinking from your end notes and your annotations that you had done an extraordinary amount of research um, consulting Chapuis' original correspondence and tracking down portraits of him, which before you, a lot of people, myself included, thought didn't exist. Can you talk a little bit about what was exciting about Chapuis and what interests you about the world of 16th century diplomacy? Chapuis was tough because I had no template to follow and no precedent. And apart from, I think, Garrett Massingley's obnoxiously long PhD. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Gareth, on yes, Chapuis, but it's two, it's it, it's 500,000 words at least. I don't know how he got away with it, but he did. <laughs> it, but it's, and listen, it's fabulous, but that was really only my starting point in terms of a proper dairy source. But what was exciting about Chapuis for me is that, I guess because there were no constraints, because there was nothing to really follow, and because it, it took me outside England, mm. even though he was an ambassador at the English court, all of his, his life and all the evidence pertaining to his life is in Europe. So he took me, it, it was like, it was just like dating a, a new popular boyfriend who, you know, whisked his way around Europe. Like I felt like I was just always around Europe, swanning around, uh, trying to research his life. And he took me to, and see, I said, he sounds like I, like he was my boyfriend, but um, researching his life, <laughs> yeah, researching his life took me to, you know, Vienna and the House of von Keys because that's where all batches ended up in the imperial archives but there are also a couple of boxes that were moved during I think the world war to Brussels for safety and they were transcribed into slightly more modern French and then subsequently lost so thank goodness we have the slightly more modern translations I know it's very it was very weird no one seems to know what happened it's just they shrug they go I don't know know. war who knows yeah (laughs) Uh, then I actually went to his hometown in Alcy which is now just near the Swiss border, it's in France near the Swiss border, but then of course it was the Duchy of Savoy. Uh, and I actually stayed in, in a little street called Rue de Chapuis, which I had no idea what, I had no idea that was the name when I first booked my hotel. But anyway, and what's, <laughs> what struck me as really interesting is that he is actually quite celebrated in his hometown because he had uh, contributed so much to the the construction of well the reconstruction of his town uh, during various years, but also he had also invested in a school for underprivileged young boys in his retirement. He was able to really give back to his hometown. And I thought that really quite an admirable uh, aspect of his life. But what was exciting was not just had having seen his dispatches, but when I actually went to one of the archives and they started just pulling out document upon document and it was it was like his will and testament you know the the letter from from him to the mayor of Ancy to thank him for such beautiful words that were said at his son Cesare's funeral and it was like oh my goodness this this is this is personal and I had I wasn't prepared for that I was just prepared for the usual you know diplomatic protocol and diplomatic letters and dispatches but this was intensely it was like spying on his life in a way and probably the most exciting moment, yes, was actually seeing those portraits because they had been locked away in vaults. And it was only through some very charming French negotiation on my part that I was able to find these darn things. Some of them are in high schools in LC, and a few of them are down in this vault in one of the museums. And I think I was allowed, I think, two hours with them. And it was just one of those moments where you've spent so long looking at a facsimile of Chapuis, as I had, that black and white facsimile of, the, of his face and it doesn't give you any 
any sense of the man. And then to actually see it in person, it was, I think I almost cried because it was like I had finally found him. And this just, it just sort of brought everything together. So definitely just chasing him around Europe was very exciting, very expensive, but very exciting. And I suppose the diplomatic element, you know, I was researching Thomas Berlin whilst researching Eustace Chapuis. I sort of started juggling a master's PhD and also the book at the same time because I like a little chaos in my life. It works for me. But it was kind of, as I know I say this, it was like sitting at opposite ends of the chessboard and you have to play both sides. Mm. And I just found that to be so fascinating. But also with Chapuis, it's it's the way that he constructs himself and it's this, it's this self-fashioning, which I'm really fascinated by with him. So how he constructs his dispatches and how he portrays Henry VIII and his court to the emperor, how he portrays the emperor to Henry VIII's court and how he constructs himself in these dispatches. I just thought it was it, it's so interesting to get an insight into ambassadorial uh, display and, and correspondence. And that really fascinates me, not just the nitty gritty and the wars that are going on and the diplomatic intrigue, but the, the men themselves and what they have to go through, especially those who, who had to be at Henry VIII's court, what they had to witness, what they had to endure. I, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, I should also just point out, I mean, that you very kindly um, let me use one of the, the portraits for Young and Damned and Fair. And yes. I mean, it, that just still so very grateful because I... I, I mean, I had obviously had a, a decent appreciation for him after reading your book. And I, I can remember you making this point where you said he gets he disparaged or dismissed, but without his letters, the Tudor court as a historical object simply is unknown. Like he I mean, he really is that integral. He's he's so detailed. And certainly when I came to write, I mean, he he met Catherine Howard, I think, about like six months into her no, five months into her queenship. Yes. But his sort his his observations, even in that latter part of his embassy, they're so sharp and they're I actually find him quite fair. I think he has this reputation as being incredibly biased. And I mean, certainly there were as there are with humans, there were elements of personal preferences, but he's the most just extraordinary eyewitness, I think, of the 1530s and 1540s. And absolutely. And I mean, I thank I mean I've said it to you privately, but thank you so much for that portrait. <laughs> I just loved it. I was so excited to put it in. Well, you know, with Chapuis, I think the common denominator again is Anne Boleyn, and there is a pattern here. And I think it's because Chapuis wasn't a fan of Anne, he has somehow been labeled by some as a misogynistic. And, you know, this this man, like, how dare he not like Anne Boleyn? Well, he's allowed to not right. like her. Um, but there's not, I mean, there's that, you know, he adored Catherine of Aragon, and I think he had such empathy for Catherine Howard. As I say in the book, I mean, he sees this young woman who, you know, she she's, if she had been, if she had lived, she really could have gone quite far in her queenship. And I think, I, I think he felt that as well. She just, need, you know, she was already learning the ropes. And I think he just, he was watching her, but he was very apprehensive because she was playing, you know, involved with such a dangerous monarch. And, you know, Chapuis knew it, as Mariac always said about Henry VIII, he'll just go on to continue dipping his hands in blood. Yeah, That was who he was. So, but yes, but so certainly, I mean, I think it all, it always, it always does come back to Anne Boleyn and how these historical characters have viewed her. And we have to get out of that habit. 
Because it's not always about Anne. No, and I say that as someone who, I mean, like, frequently makes it about Anne. But I I think, I mean, I always think that the Chapuis and Anne, I mean, certainly your book really makes this point because I can remember just before Inside the Tudor Court came out, and this was probably, the, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it as well. I started to be aware, really in this sort of the juggernaut age of social media where decisions were made before things came out. I can remember that, I mean, I'm sure you came across it, where people more or less said that any biography of Chapuis was going to be negative about Anne. Without oh, I missed that. <laughs> I don't think I was tech savvy back then. I missed those posts. I'm, I'm still not really tech savvy. I just seem to get an avalanche of, of oh my goodness. hateful correspondence turning <laughs> on my screen when all I want are good memes about the Queen Mother. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I th- and one of the things, I mean, just for, for anyone tempted to buy it, and I strongly recommend Inside the Tudor Court, is you kind of follow and really stress Chapuis' uh, personal dislike of her and distress at the circumstances of Anne's rise, because it did mean Catherine of Aragon's demotion, were yes. principally loyalty-based. But also, Chapuis, I think you see the measure of the man in that he it's not true that he never says anything positive about Anne. He does say, you know, that she's very brave and clever and he is quite prepared to compliment his enemies, you know, when he feels they merit it. Yes, I, I think for him, he, he is able to separate the professional ambassador from from his, his own personal dislike of her. And he, yes, and, and, and also it comes back also, I you know, when I was in Vienna, I saw... The translate I put the translations of some of his letters against the originals which I was reading and again it's those it's those translators and those Victorian historians uh in certain parts I'd see in the let in the Spanish calendar they have written concubine but in the original it would say either the, the lady the dame or maîtresse which is not the same no and I feel like that was it was such a they did a dirty on him they really did yeah. because that of course informs our opinion of of, of Yusuf Chapuis as being so blinded by his hatred for Anne. But you're right, he, of course, he admired her. And, you know, these ideas that, oh, he stayed away from her coronation because he couldn't bear to be there. No, he was there. He was drinking on the Thames. We know he was. He was enjoying himself. He, you know, even he's able to kind of put it, just let it go for a few hours. But we have to remember that this this, uh, criticism of Anne comes from love of Catherine and, and love of Mary and loyalty to them. I and we have to allow that. To, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, just what you said about the translations, it's its one of the things, I mean, actually still just from a, a, a religious perspective, it's, it's one of the reasons why um, so many translations of the Bible make me a bit nervous because I, <laughs> you know, yes. I have, I've seen how easily a translator can shift the tone and shift the meaning. And certainly, I mean, as you say, that so for people who maybe aren't aware of it, I mean, one of the common uh, assertions of Chapuis' personality is that he was so blinded by hatred of Anne Boleyn that he only ever referred to her in his official correspondence as the concubine or the whore. And that is, I mean, the concubine myth is just essentially... Um, dodgy translation and I think doesn't he he say he calls her that once when he or once or twice and he's really angry yes it's a few it's a few times and it's really it's just sort of peppered in there every now and then but it's usually 
it's reactionary. He's not just saying it casually to Charles V. It's when she's done something that has so infuriated him. You can see it on the page and you can see it in his scrawl. He's so miffed about it. <laughs> uh, and you have to allow, like, he's allowed to be angry. You know, he has his bad days. But it doesn't negate everything else that makes him such an important source. No, absolutely not. Well, last questions, because I think that sets us up nicely. So to bring it back to her, uh, Thomas Boleyn's youngest daughter, Queen Anne, has certainly been portrayed many times on screen. Do you have a favourite portrayal? And the final question to lead on from that, we'll call <laughs> Lauren's choice. If COVID lifted and we could resurrect the dead for a night on the town, who would be your plus one, Thomas Boleyn or Eustace Shipwee? Okay, so let me, I'll start with the easier part of that question, which is the first part. Uh, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to cause any riots, and I always say this, I don't necessarily particularly love Anne of a Thousand Days and, um, and Genevieve Bourgeois, and I know everyone does love it, but it just, it just didn't speak to me. And funnily enough, even though the rest of it is just nonsense, I did like Natalie Dormer as Anne Boleyn. I thought oh, she... Yeah. Yeah, but she and she captured it so well. I, I I remember I met her at a book launch years ago on the Thames one night, and we were talking about, and she was talking about the series, and uh, how she wanted to bring this sort of this more human nuance to Anne. And yes, she's flawed, but she's a real woman, and you know we shouldn't put her on the pedestal, but we have to ad admire her, but also connect with her. She wanted her Anne to be so accessible, and that really spoke to me. And then I actually had a I had a conversation years later with I sound like I'm name dropping I promise I'm not I'm just saying it it's just drop away Lauren okay but and I had a conversation with Nick Dunning who of course played Thomas Boleyn the wonderful Nick Dunning and he said that he and Natalie had had long conversations about how they wanted to show a complicated relationship between father and daughter where there is a lot of love there where he tries to do well by his children. And he sometimes fails as a parent because, of course, his, his daughter has her own ambitions and her own expectations about the direction in which her life is going to go. And they wanted to really capture that, that complexity in their relationship. And I thought that was something that was so admirable because I had never seen that uh, play out on screen before. But you do get glimpses of that in the Tudors as much as they were allowed to project that. Mm. So that would be my favourite now, okay, so this is a really tough question. Who would I have, who would I go out on the town with? Okay, so Thomas Flynn would be really fun because I think he'd have great stories and he'd have the real French vibe going and maybe he'd get into a wrestling match. I don't know, who knows what he would do. But Chapuis <laughs> is such a foodie. Mm. And I think he had one of the best larders in the in the east of London. And also he was really into his wines and he got this fantastic Swiss cheese from a friend in Geneva. And I just feel like he'd have stories, too, because, of course, he he was a man of the world. He lived in Italy. He you know moved through the continent. I think he'd have some fantastic stories and he'd probably keep me entertained with, you know, mimicking Henry VIII's poetry or something like that whilst having some fantastic wine and cheese. So I think I'd have to pick Chapuis. Uh, and then maybe at the end, Thomas Boleyn could just nip in, sure. I don't know, for a little nightcap or something. But that would be that would be my my go-to. Well, first of all, totally agree with the Natalie Dormer uh, answer. Extraordinary. Um, love the details about Nick Dunning. I just want to say the level of justified and justified <laughs> thought that went in to picking Chapuis, extraordinary. Um, I fully admire anyone who who has thought through the wine and cheese options for the night. 
Uh, you have to think ahead, Gareth. You, you do not want to be there and listening to, I don't know, Thomas Howard talk about how they should have listened to him in Ireland in 1523. Well, exactly. Or cracking walnuts, or God knows what he would do yeah, at the dinner table. Crappy beer that nobody wants. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, I feel like Thomas Cromwell would be such an artisanal beer kind of person. <laughs> so, which is just tells you everything you need to know about what I think. <laughs> Um, well, listen, I just, Lauren, I want to thank you so much um, for coming along. Uh, Dr. Laura Mackay is the author of Among the Wolves of Court, Inside the Tudor Court and the New Wolfhall Companion. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That was amazing. And tune in next week to Single Malt History for the life of a forgotten medieval queen whose beauty dazzled a kingdom, but whose private life sparked a civil war. Adeliza of Louvain, the true story of the fair maiden of Brabant, is our next episode. Until then, don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and either way, to definitely have a great week served to you and yours in the days ahead. Thanks for listening.